Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, disturbing details regarding Ottawa's police services intelligence during the convoy have surfaced. One report from OPS quoting the National Post. Luke Lebrun, who is an editor of Press Progress, will fill us in on that. We're also shining a spotlight on a great piece in the Narwhal titled, Doug Ford is Gutting Conservation Authorities. Fatima Sayed, who is the author of the article, will join us and talk about that. And your Secretary of State is touring Canada with Global Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Does this strengthen our relations with the U.S.? And how important is that relationship? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, inquiry, of course, into the implementation of the Emergencies Act that's going on in Ottawa right now is, uh, well, it's not boring, I can tell you that. I just mentioned before the news break, uh, there was disturbing testimony yesterday. That's happened just about every day, but I think it reached a new level yesterday uh, with some uh, expose, shall we say, uh, some information about the attitude that police had and the quote-unquote intelligence that they were using uh, before and during uh, the occupation of downtown Ottawa. Uh, there's a piece that I want to refer to here from uh, pressprogress.ca. Uh, Ottawa Police Intelligence Unit relied on dubious and politically biased information about the convoy. Uh, the uh, article is written by uh, Luke Lebrun, who is the editor of, uh, of Progr- Press, uh, Press Pro. And uh, first of all, I want to, Luke, thank you for joining us on the program. Great to have you with us today. Uh, no. Listen, we I, I think are past being shocked by some of the stuff we're hearing, but mm-hmm. you know the attitude of, of police in a situation like this, and there's documented proof about what was going on, is is really disturbing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, so, you know, I've been covering the uh, the Emergencies Act inquiry for the last uh, week or two now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so every day, you know, we have testimony from different witnesses for the last several days. We've had, um, you know, testimony from uh, police. So, you know, people involved with the Ottawa Police Service uh, specifically, but also the Ontario Provincial Police. Uh, also, we've had some, you know, people uh, involved with intelligence for those, uh, you know, different agencies. And um, so, yeah, I mean, like there's ta- there's evidence tabled uh, during this uh, this inquiry. And uh, in this case, you know, I took a closer look at this January 25th Ottawa police uh, intelligence report um, just to give people a sense of the timeline here at this point, because it's been such a long time. But January 25th was about three days before the convoy arrived. And there's been this big question about, you know, how did Ottawa police not know what was coming their way? Uh, Why weren't they more prepared? You know, so on and so forth. And if you take a closer look at this intelligence report, it is, you know, truly wacky. And, you know, don't take my word for it. Like I went and found a, uh, you know, Carleton University professor who who teaches a class on intelligence report writing and was a former yeah. CSIS uh, intelligence uh, analyst themselves. And, you know, they said this was this is a really unprofessional um, report. And there's just things in, in here which are, are really strange. Well, yeah, the prof, of course, is Stephanie Carvin, who's been a guest on this program many times. Uh, as you say, former CSIS intelligent analyst, and she's at Carleton University now, and she she knows what she, what of she speaks. Uh, and the essence of this is, is, as you point out in the article, uh, their quote-unquote intelligent report was really almost a regurgitation of an article that Rex Murphy had written for the uh, the National <laughs> Post, uh, decrying, you know, uh, you know, left-leaning liberals. I mean, I mean, Mr. Murphy's, you know, bias against uh, the Trudeau government is, is well known. And that's, that's his business really. Yeah. Uh, but you'd expect better from the police. 
Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you can have whatever opinion you want about Rex uh, Murphy's opinions, uh, but like at the end of the day, this is an opinion column. What is it doing in an intelligence report, you know? Uh, but in this report, they actually refer to Rex Murphy's National Post uh, opinion column, which was quite sympathetic to the to the convoy. Uh, they refer to this as, quote unquote, open source intelligence. So, you know, basically the intelligence uh, officer read the newspaper and then that served as the basis for their you know for their uh you know january 25th uh, intelligence assessment on the convoy um but you know it, it does raise some like i mean there's other things in this that are, are kind of uh disturbing i mean uh there is uh it, it mentions one person by name uh who's a local ottawa activist uh I think it's fair to call him a left-wing activist and, um, you know, has been quite critical of, of the police in Ottawa. And in this intelligence assessment, I mean, they're just making offhand uh, kind of snarky uh, comments, mocking, uh, mocking this person. And they're sort of contrasting, you know, those, you know, those people, those sort of left-wing uh, activists that often, you know, criticize police and, and protest the police. And they're contrasting them with the, you know, they call them, you know, mi good, like basically good middle class uh, people who are part of the convoy. And, you know, you, you get a sense of, I mean, just the image that this is creating, like it really does give the sense that this specific, uh, you know, intelligence report was prepared by someone who had, you know, a pretty, you know, clearly had a pretty strong opinion, uh, you know, about you know, these sorts of things, um, you know, at that, at the same time, like, I don't want to generalize and say that this one individual's um, personal opinions, you know, represent the entire Ottawa police service, but clearly this one individual's opinions were, you know, coloring the intelligence that they were relying on uh, in advance of the convoy. Well, exactly. And, and as you say, it, it's tone as much as anything else, uh, you know, and you quote some of the lines from the report in your piece here, Increasing numbers of spontaneous protests against regimes globally concerning COVID-19 restrictions uh, says the success of global protests on the subject of vaccine mandates creates a sense of efficacy, a sense that one's actions actually have an impact. In other words, they're impressed by the fact that people are revolting against the vaccine mandates. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then basically, you know, describing, as you mentioned, most other uh, quote unquote protests is just repetitive with the same players, the same chants mocking left-wing activists who glue themselves to something, waiting for the same old supper hour news shows and write-ups and the left-hand handbills. Uh, so in other words, you know, decrying those people. But these these people that are coming to Ottawa, the inf the inference here is that they're good, hard-working people and they have a legitimate beef. Uh, and and if you go into anything like that, I guess, with a preconceived notion, I mean, how can, how can you be level-headed and unbiased when it comes to how you're going to police this and how you're going to handle the situation? Yeah, and I mean, this is also problematic because at the same time, the Ontario Provincial Police were also producing intelligence reports that were, you know, identifying, first of all, you know, indicating that the convoy supporters were planning to stay well beyond the first weekend. You know, Ottawa Police thought, I mean, they said publicly at the time, and they've said at this inquiry, they thought they were going to leave after the first weekend, but we now can see OPP intelligence reports that clearly let me, let me show just stop. that they were Let me ask you yeah, about sorry. that for just a second, because you've been, yeah. you've been following this, this report. Where in God's green earth did they get the idea that they were only going to stay the weekend? Because any intelligence, first of all, they, they didn't admit there was any intelligence, but now we know there was, indicated that these guys were there for the long haul. There was no indication at all. The only reference I saw, and it was in your earlier reporting, uh, was that one of the uh, Ottawa police said, well, you know, we had a farmer's protest a month ago and they went mm -hmm. away after Sunday, assuming they've, they're all going to be like that. 
I mean, there, there was absolutely no basis for them to make that conclusion, was there? No, yeah. I mean, so I mean, just to pick up on you, uh, what you just mentioned, yeah. So there were um, I, I, they referenced the uh, I guess Indian farmers protests, which had happened uh, I think in the recent time. I think they were also referencing uh, the dairy farmers because uh, I mean, people from Ottawa would probably know this, but you know, every now and then the dairy farmers come down to Parliament Hill. They park their tractors in front of Parliament Hill. Uh, you know, they basically spend a couple, of, like a, an afternoon there. They make their point, kind of pose for photos, and then they, you know, move on. Uh, also, I mean, I'll, I'll point out too, the dairy farmers hand out um, cheese curds and chocolate milk to everyone, and everyone, you know, really appreciates having them there. So, you know, no one in Ottawa is annoyed with the dairy farmers, but I guess, uh, you know, I guess the police just thought it was going to be something like that. And, uh, you know, cl clearly, uh, clearly they're, they're basing this on, you know, some pretty lazy assumptions. I, and again, as you say, I, there's people with preconceived notions. And again, Professor Carvin says the intelligence reports obvious sustain for uh, the, the Hirsch, the, the gentleman you were talking to here who has been identified, Sam Hirsch, as, as a kind of a left-wing activist. And I get that. But when you're in a situation like this, and, and this seemed to be the way the testimony was going, uh, according to your piece, uh, you can think what you want. You know, Rex Murphy can think what you want. That's his his right. Uh, if you're an Ottawa cop, you can think what you want about, about the prime minister, about vaccines or whatever. Uh, but once you put the uniform on, uh, you've sworn an oath to serve and protect, not to not, you know, not to substantiate your political biases. That's that's got to be way down the list once you put that uniform on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, that's the point that um, that uh, that Stephanie Carvin makes in, in the piece, you know, just, you know, this whole intelligence report is sort of you know, relying on uh, unsubstantiated uh, editorialization. That's the word that uh, um, uh, Stephanie Carvin uses. Um, you know, but it, it does really just read kind of like a personal reflection essay or, or something. And it's like its value as an intelligence document is kind of dubious. Um, you know, and I mean, just to take a step back here and just sort of connect it with larger things too. I mean, I think one of the things that is really coming into focus with this um, inquiry is that, you know, really this was a, a like a massive policing failure. And in many ways, you know, the convoy spiraled out of control just because Ottawa, Ottawa police, like, I mean, I'm really focusing on that agency because it seems like the problem started right there. But, you know, all the testimony we're hearing is just how Ottawa police were, you know, completely disorganized. There was lots of infighting. Uh, there's suggestions from the former Ottawa police chair board, uh, sorry, the former chair of the Ottawa Police Board, that, uh, you know, people within the Ottawa Police were actively sabotaging the police chief, Peter Slowly, who was Ottawa's first black police officer, um, or sorry, first black police chief. And, um, you know, it, like just the picture that you're getting from all this is just that there was, uh, you know, just like a really dysfunctional uh, kind of culture within the Ottawa Police. One of the concerns I've got, and that's uh, that I found your piece so interesting. I, I know the stated reasoning for this inquiry is to decide whether or not the government uh, should have invoked the act. And, and as I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, uh, that's required by law, by the way. The, part of the Emergencies Act is if it ever does get invoked, there has to be an inquiry sometime after that to, you know, to do an assessment on it. So that's what's going on here. Uh, so I get that, and that's understandable, and they'll certainly rule on that as to whether or not the government could have or should have done something differently. But what's starting to, to really rise to the top here in a lot of this testimony, and I'm, I'm glad you, you brought this in the piece, 
is that the conduct or non-conduct, I guess, of, of Ottawa police and the OPP and others in this situation. I don't, I don't know uh, what the inquiry is going to do, even mention that in their report. I, but you got to ask yourself, as a number of other uh, columnists have asked over the last little while, why didn't the cops do their job? You know, they, they have lousy intelligence. They ignored some of the intelligence, uh, for instance, from the you know the Ottawa Gatineau uh, Hotel Association that said, wait, wait, these guys are booking rooms for 60 days, not for three days. Uh, but they ignored that. They, oh, come on, we get that stuff all the time. No, you don't. And, and the other element that I think ticked off a lot of people I've talked to uh, who were there at the time living in Ottawa is why didn't they ticket these guys? Why didn't they make any arrests? Mm-hmm. And, and we saw pictures of, of you know certain officers consorting uh, with some of the protesters there. It kind of tells you where their hearts and their heads were. Well, here's just one anecdote that I found most uh, kind of mind boggling. Um, So uh, at the intersection of Rideau and Sussex, which is a very central, uh, very key intersection in Ottawa, um, you know, this was sort of occupied during the uh, during the 20, 30 days of of occupation. Uh, There was a uh, an extremist group from Quebec that kind of marked that as their turf and just decided to kind of make that intersection theirs. Um, Ottawa police mobilized 400 officers uh, to a hotel kind of in the suburbs, and they were planning uh, an operation where they were going to uh, clear out that intersection, I guess, because they recognized that the people there were, you know, you know, extremists and, you know, pose a, a real threat to public safety. And according to the testimony that's coming out, they canceled that operation because there was so much infighting amongst, you know, Ottawa police and they were you know, basically fighting with one another over who's in charge, uh, you know, kind of nitpicking each other's plans, you know, like people were just kind of being belligerent. And, you know, you get the impression that just no one can cooperate, like on a really basic level. And, you know, it goes deeper than just the stress. And like, I'll recognize there's it's probably a very stressful, uh, you know, situation for Ottawa police to be in. But it seems like it goes much deeper than that. Um, one other thing I'll just know really quickly, too, is just that, um, you know, shortly before the convoy, I mean, there had been a, a report released just showing how there was, you know, just a, lo- a culture of harassment and, you know, just sort of toxic workplace issues within the Ottawa police. And, um, you know, just stuff with, you know, like workplace bullying, uh, you know, people yelling at each other, people, you know, sexual harassment, racism, like that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, if you look at that and you look at what happened in the with the convoy shortly thereafter, I mean, it really does seem like those two things are, are kind of connected in, in pretty big ways. Uh, I mean, you know, because we had one of the Ottawa officers, I guess he was, uh, during this occupation, I guess he took over the role of, of special projects or whatever the, the title was to try to look after this thing. And and he says they didn't need the Emergencies Act, you know, which begs the question, then why didn't you do anything about this? Like, what took you so long? Nothing happened. Nothing happened to move those people out until the Emergencies Act was invoked. And, and that seemed to start the ball rolling. So, you know, if Ottawa police had a better plan, they didn't use it. Uh, they didn't tell anybody, including the mayor, I guess, and the chair of the police services board. They didn't tell anybody. So was there even an alternative plan? Yeah, you know, uh, one thing I'll say, too, is uh, just my observation from following the uh, the inquiry. Um, you know, I would kind of approach each individual uh, witness's 
uh, testimony with a bit of caution because we're, we keep hearing, you know, they'll ask one person one thing and they'll tell them what they knew. And then you hear from three others that they didn't know that, um, which just kind of goes back to my point about how things were so dysfunctional and there's so much confusion and uh, they were just, you know, really disorganized. But we keep hearing this time and time again where, you know, one officer thought things were fine and then, you know, another one didn't know, uh, you know, several really important key pieces of information. Um, Ottawa police, uh, like the leadership of the Ottawa police, this was the testimony of the uh, deputy police chief, uh, Trish uh, Ferguson. Um, she did not know about the existence of OPP intelligence reports until about the second week of the convoy. She didn't even know that these things existed because people were not sharing this information internally. Um, you know, so anyways, when you when you hear a testimony from individual, uh, you know, individual witnesses in this inquiry, I would I would say approach it with a bit of skepticism or a bit of caution. Well, uh, as there's a lot of covering of butts, I think, that are going on here with some of the testimony right now. People just trying to say, that wasn't, that wasn't me. No, no, don't look at me. Uh, and I guess that's to be expected in situations like this. But it, and, and I feel badly. I mean, I'm, I don't think anybody should pay, you know, the Ottawa Police Service with all the same brush. I'm sure there are a number of, of dedicated, probably the majority of people are dedicated officers. That, And I feel sorry for them being on the front lines during this whole thing. You know, what do they do? And they're... You know, they're getting yelled at from both sides. It's it's not a kind situation to be in. But I think the focus, though, as, as you rightly point out in the article, has to go to the upper management of Ottawa police and, and the coordination or lack of coordination in dealing with this issue. Forget about whether or not the Emergencies Act should have been uh, enacted or not. What about the way that they handled the oncoming convoy? They did nothing to prepare for this, just thought everything was going to go away in two days. And and look at what they, they as a result. Look at what what happened to the city and to the psyche of this country. I guess, and uh, I I don't know if the inquiry as as it stands right now, Luke, can actually even address that. Yeah, I don't I don't know either. But uh, you know, one thing I'll say is you know I've filed a number of uh, you know access to information requests with Ottawa Police trying to get information. Uh, you know, over the last couple of months, and you know they have just shut down uh, any attempt to try to get information of them. You know, police forces are, are notoriously, you know, don't like to, to share the, their internal um, documents and what have you. But, uh, you know, I think this inquiry does sort of underline how, you know, more transparency with our police services and, you know, those, you know, law enforcement agencies might actually do them some good because, you know, it might actually surface some of these problems before they, you know, spiral out of control. Well, exactly. And, you know, we've seen police handle other situations in other cities uh, remarkably well uh, using the intelligence and, as you say, sharing the intelligence. All of the things that probably could have been done and should have been done uh, apparently were not done. And uh, sadly, the, the residents of downtown Ottawa were the, the victims in this whole situation. Uh, great reporting, as always. I, I keep doing what you're doing here, Luke, because we need to get that information out there. I appreciate, first of all, the, uh, the work that you're doing. And uh, second of all, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Uh, always appreciate talking to you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So the Ford government has uh, proposed a piece of legislation uh, to build more homes, but they seem to want to do it at the expense of conservation authorities, which is a bit of a head-scratcher, quite frankly, for me and many other people. And our next guest, uh, Fatima Sayed, is a journalist with uh, Narwhal, the Narwhal, who has done some great investigative reporting on this and so many other uh, subjects. But uh, this one is, is kind of near and dear to people 
in, well, the Hamilton community and the London community, too, because of the great work that those conservation authorities do. And uh, Fatima joins us here to talk about this. Great to have you back in the program. First of all, thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. It's lovely to be back. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. And I've mentioned to my listeners, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, a number of years ago, I sat on the Hamilton Conservation Authority uh, and and enjoyed the time thoroughly. I found it very educational. Uh, I what, what bothers me about this, and I'm talking about the government policy, and I'm glad you wrote this piece about it, is they seem to be blaming conservation authorities for the lack of housing. And I don't quite make that connection. Yeah, it's, it's a little baffling. Uh, you know, this is the second time that the Ford government has gone after conservation authorities since coming into power in 2018. I don't know, Bill, if you recall, um, back in, in 2020, they had another massive omnibus bill uh, about uh, housing and planning uh, again, which basically ordered conservation authorities to wind down, that's the word they used, um, their activities to their core mandate. Again, that's the government's words. Um, Conservation authorities have spent the last several years working with the government to really define the core mandate and, you know, get back on track to to the work they do, which is to prevent um, and mitigate the impacts of flooding across the province. Um, so they were all surprised. We were all surprised to see yet another planning legislation, which again uh, served as a Trojan horse for deep rollbacks on conservation regulations across the province. Well, and I recall the one just a couple of years ago, too, because actually it, it motivated David Crombie, who was the chair of the Greenbelt Committee at the time, to resign because he just had a concern did, yeah. and a problem, uh, you know, about, about the direction in which they were going. Uh, and by the way, just to remind our listeners, David Crombie is a conservative, uh, a little tiny mayor of Toronto, but he was also a federal cabinet minister uh, and, and a, a very strong environmentalist. Uh, and, and as I said, just put it in the simplest terms, because I talked to Mr. Crombie just after he did resign because of the way the government seemed to be treating conservation authorities. Uh, the one thing I learned day one, I guess, in the, as when I was on the conservation board, it's a lot of water beneath us, a lot. There were water tables and, and it, you know, you can't build wherever you want and do whatever you want there because it's going to have an impact on, on the environment. And it's a check and balance, isn't it? It absolutely is. I think people, what Ontarians need to understand is you know, so often when we think about, you know, the protection of nature, we equate it with the green belt. And we have this government in power that has said time and time again, we're not going to touch the green belt. But that doesn't mean that they're going to protect all the other natural spaces, um, including the water bodies across the province. What we're seeing with this legislation is, um, deep cuts to the ways conservation authorities can actually oversee development uh, on floodplains, near waterways, on, um, you know, watersheds. And, and that's troubling, right? It could be small things. So, for example, this legislation proposes that conservation authorities can no longer consider the conservation of land when they're weighing whether a development can be permitted in uh, a protected natural space, for example. Um, or that conservation authorities' work will now be subject to uh, a community infrastructure and housing accelerator that basically asks, that basically allows the province to, fat, like, make zoning changes very, very quickly. Um, 
So it's little things that add up like that, that basically mean that when we're building houses, we're not really keeping, you know, sustainability top of mind. Like we're not really going through all the checks and balances that um, maintain that our houses and our buildings could last for the next 10 to 20 years in a climate emergency where we will see more severe flooding, more severe natural disasters, and so forth. And that's the entire role of conservation authorities. It's to ensure that Ontarians are protected against those natural events. Well, and as you point out in the piece that you wrote, uh, you know, there are 36 conservation authorities in the province. Uh, 30 of them are in, well, as you mentioned, southern part of Ontario here, you know, highly densulated population. Uh, and and they, the purpose they serve, as you say, is to to assess a housing development. You know, if somebody wants to build a, a subdivision or whatever the case might be, you know, uh, th- these guys have commenting authority to say, well, th- this is what will happen if you do this to this parcel of land. Or, or sometimes the answer is, yeah, okay, we can do that, but let's monitor this, this, and this. And it, it, it works. It, what it is, it's another tool for municipalities to, to evaluate a proposal like this. And basically, the government's saying, we don't want to hear from you anymore. Yeah, and it's an important tool, right? I I think there's often a misconception that conservation authorities are the ones that are holding development back because they prioritize the environment so much. But if you actually understand the development process, conservation authorities are just a step. The final decision is made ultimately by municipalities and the province. All conservation authorities do is give advice and feedback on whether a development will... um, you know, hurt the environment or put Ontarians in danger to natural disasters. Um, And I think we want that check and balance in as we look ahead to a future where, where, you know, the climate emergency should be front of mind. Um, So I I think, you know, what the government is doing is, is burying, uh, uh, you know, the development process into a lot of jargon uh, with this legislation. Um, but ultimately, it's it's creating a lot of loopholes for developers to do um, uh, whatever they need to do to build. It, it, it's very developer friendly. And, and we need to be concerned about that and really look closely as, as to what's being allowed and, and what's being revoked and repealed. Well, and I know, and you quoted the the, the minister uh, from a speech he gave a little while ago, where uh, suggesting that conservation authorities were the largest landowner of crown lands in the province of Ontario. Uh, it's and it's not all protected land. First of all, it's 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 land that no. that that they are they are stewards over. That's really what it comes down to. Uh, and we have lots of areas like that right across the province, and, and in just about every community you could talk about. Uh, and, and I guess the bottom line here, as you point out in the in the piece. We, we have a housing crisis here. Absolutely. Nobody's going to disagree with that. Uh, but the Conservation Authority are not the bad guys here. Uh, you know, and it, it the way that minister spoke, and, and I'm glad you used that quote that he gave, seems to indicate that, you know, they're, they're envious of those lands. Like, hey, we can build a lot of houses on that stuff. You know, we don't need to, to maintain that. We don't care what, what the watershed would do or how it would be impacted. We just want to build something there. Uh, and that's not really what we want to do here. That's not the way we want to grow, is it? It's, I don't think it is the way we can grow. Well, Bill, I, I think it was interesting to hear that, you know, uh, the government is asking conservation authorities, which are the second largest landowner um, in the province, to evaluate their land and identify what parts of their land they can give up. And, and this is contradictory for, for many reasons, starting with the fact that during the pandemic, the government was a huge proponent of, you know, conservation lands because everyone was going out and, and enjoying them in, in huge numbers. Um, 
but beyond that, I think, you know, we have very little data. Like we don't have the mapping yet to understand, um, you know, what pockets of land Ontario can develop in these conservation areas. But what we do have is every municipality has already identified pockets of land that can be developed right now. The question is, why aren't we developing those lands right now and looking at these conservation lands, for example? There's a whole host of problems that, you know, could be uh, attributing to the housing crisis, including things like, you know, what's holding back developers uh, from, from actually building in the already zoned land. Uh, the government says that it's the permit process. Conservation authorities say no. You know, if you talk to municipalities and conservation authorities, conservation authorities are the fastest at responding to permit applications. And they are the most complicated legal documents that you can imagine with tons of paperwork. Um, we really need to look at what is causing the housing crisis and the government is pointing at a million different things and really not honing down at, at the contributing factors um it's a very complex conversation bill and but but all i come down to is we need conservation regulations if we're going to build sustainably if we're going to build houses that's going to last generations and to do that we need these conservation authorities to keep those checks and balances in place um we can stream, you know, the government says we're going to streamline them. We're not going to, you know, destroy their role and, and so forth. But when you look at the details, it tells a very different picture. And that's concerning. Absolutely. Uh, I, I just remember the story years and years ago when I was working in Toronto about uh, some houses uh, around the Scarborough area that were actually falling into to the Don River uh, because they'd been built in the wrong place uh, years and years ago with, I guess, pre-conservation authorities. Uh, you know, they would have loved that advice at those times, you know, because all of a sudden these houses are starting to creep into the valley. Uh, you don't want to have that sort of thing. And, and that, that's an important role that they play. It's a great piece. And I think it's uh, something that we really need uh, everyone to read so they can get a picture as to exactly where the government is going on this. Uh, I, I applaud their enthusiasm to try to get housing built. Uh, but when and where we do it is going to be critical here. Uh, as always, Fatima, thank you so much for the time today and great piece. And uh, I uh, suggest all of our listeners uh, check it out on the Narwhal and get the details that I think we all need to find as we move forward here. But thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. You take care. You too. Fatima Syed, who is a journalist with the Narwhal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, plane carrying uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will touch down in Ottawa momentarily. Uh, for actually a two-day visit to uh, this country. This is the first official visit for the U.S. Secretary of State. And uh, it uh, is basically, I, I think, in part because of a, a special relationship that he seems to have developed with uh, Global Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Uh, how important is that to have that kind of a, a relationship? And how important is it for Canada and the U.S. to have a stronger bond when it comes to international relationships? Well, to explore that, we're so pleased to welcome our next guest back to the program. He is a Professor Oral Brown, who is a Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Mug School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Talk to us about that relationship. I, I guess in, in, in past generations and in past governments, uh, the U.S. and Canada have usually had a cordial relationship uh, when it comes to things like foreign affairs. Uh, Canadians always seem to put foreign affairs way down on the list when it comes to our priorities. But given the circumstances in the in the global economy and the global situation right now, the geopolitics is is it important for Canada to start looking outward and to have a stronger relationship and more interest in what's going on? 
absolutely crucial. And of course, our relationship with the United States uh, is uh, a truly vital one. Our la uh, largest trading partner, we uh, ship a huge uh, amount of goods uh, across the border, back and forth. This is the longest undefended border. We cooperate together in the defense of North America through NORAD. We are members of NATO and we are members of the G7 and G20. So there are a lot of areas where we need to cooperate, where we benefit from cooperation. There are major issues facing us from the war in Ukraine to the enormous protests that are taking place in Iran to what is happening in uh, the developing world uh, where they're experiencing food insecurity. All these are major issues that Canada has been concerned with, where we need to be involved. And uh, this relationship, therefore, uh, is something that has to be nurtured. It is somewhat surprising that this is the first official visit by uh, uh, Anthony Blinken to Canada. Yeah, uh, well, the, I guess there's an argument to be made that he was busy over in Europe because some of the things that have gone on there. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I think the, the foundation for this, is, as we're hearing now, is that uh, they have met, of course, uh, Minister Jolie and, and uh, Secretary of State Blinken many times at, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, at, J at uh, NATO's conferences, G8 and G20, etc. However, uh, they seem to develop a personal relationship. Uh, a, a friendly relationship uh, between the two of them. There's a lot of common ground, I think, between those two when you look at their uh, family histories and things of this nature. Uh, as I say, we know we're on the same side. We're allies and we're all members of, of those agencies that we just talked about. But how important is it to actually not just get along, but to, to have that sort of a friendly relationship? There has to be trust and there has to be substance to that trust. Uh, you had mentioned that, of course, uh, they met in many places. Uh, uh, Minister Jolie was in uh, the U.S. about a month ago, and of course, uh, all these meetings that they've had in Europe and uh, elsewhere. But if you look at the relationship that the United States has with Britain, which is not in that much larger in terms of population or uh, in, term of, in terms of its economy, it, it is a relationship where the Americans often talk about the British being their best friends. In fact, we are the closest friends that the United States has, but the British uh, punch above their weight, if, they, if you like. Uh, mm. In the case of Canada, we have had uh, very positive rhetoric, but we have not always performed up to our potential, and that includes our military contribution. Yes, we are beginning to strengthen uh, North American defenses, but this is rather little and relatively late. We are still not spending uh, the guideline uh, of two percent of GDP on the military. The British, the British are. So that contrast is an important one, and uh, among the discussions that are going to take place will be Ukraine, because United States wants to make sure that they rally the allies. That that support continues for Ukraine, not just in terms of positive declaratory statements but in actual military as well as economic help. Um, there also will be talks about, uh, um, you know, manufacturing. A, there will be a visit to a lith lithium reprocessing plant because uh, uh, electrical power and electrical vehicles uh, are important. So th there is a great deal to discuss. And if Canada can show that we are becoming more heavily committed to what is the geopolitical 
reality and dealing with the geopolitical reality, which sadly uh, means that we have to strengthen our hard power as much as we would prefer, rightly so, uh, we prefer to spend uh, money on health care and on education, but there's not that much choice. This is uh, unfortunately what the conflict in Ukraine reveals, that uh, despite our hopes that the 21st century would be better than the 20th century, uh, there are disturbing trends, and we have to deal with them uh, before they take an even worse turn. Vladimir Putin is going to make a speech later today, and he might choose to escalate. Well, and that's the rumor. And I know, you know, we've already talked in the past about the, the, po the possible use of tactical nuclear weapons, too. I, I, I think that's probably, if in fact that happens, God forbid, that's something I guess we'll react to. I don't think he's actually going to announce that. But your point's well taken. There has been a, an increased emphasis on northern defense uh, in the last couple of months, especially. And uh, I would imagine, as cordial as, as uh, you know, uh, Secretary Blinken is with uh, Minister Jolie, uh, there's there's a lot of pressure from uh, uh, Washington right now to Ottawa uh, to try to work with that. And I know they've already signed a deal to increase uh, spending uh, and upgrade a number of the NORAD facilities to the north. But I, I think there's a real concern, at, from the U.S. especially, about Russia's interest and China's interest in, in the Arctic right now. And uh, Canada, I, I feel they're saying it has to play a larger role in that. They cannot do it without Canada. It's a cooperative effort. We are an integral part of uh, NORAD, and uh, we need things that uh, are very basic, like over-the-horizon radar that is going to be able to detect uh, the large uh, uh, arsenals uh, that uh, may be moved around by Russia. Russia has very heavily militarized the Arctic. Russia is trying to develop more hypersonic weapons. You need to detect those weapons as soon as possible uh, to get as much warning as, as you can uh, to create the kind of deterrence that will not uh, make Russia believe that Canada or North America in general is a soft or tempting target. And all of that takes a tremendous amount of effort. It is uh, true that we have now committed something like $4.9 billion over the next 10 years, or maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, but it raises the question, what did we do up to now? And it's not just this government, but other governments as well. How is it that we have not done all the kind of things that uh, would have been done uh, you know, in the course of events, given that uh, military technology changes? that opponents develop uh, various new capabilities. That is the case with Russia. The Russian militarization of the Arctic, the climate change that is allowing for more navigational possibilities, the fact that the Chinese want to create a polar silk road and they're funding some of the Russian exploration. All these things have been happening for years now. Is it? Is it Due in part to the fact that we haven't had the presence up there. I mean, we maintain and talk about our sovereignty up there, but uh, if you're not there and somebody else fills the void, there's something going to say, well, you know, it's, it's ours now. Sorry. I mean, are, are we heading towards uh, at least a political conflict? Hopefully not a military conflict, uh, but at some point in the future, you know, the, the, the Russians are going to try to assert themselves there to a stronger degree. They have uh, pressured us. They have prodded in 
and poked uh, air defenses and so on. This doesn't mean that there'll be an outright invasion. And if people just put it that way, will they invade Canada? That is not the immediate danger. There's so many other things yeah. that can happen. Uh, with the vast exploration of hydrocarbons this, uh, by Russia, and they are extremely reckless in how they do it. They are really poor custodians of the environment. And this is a very fragile ecosystem. This presents enormous uh, risks of pollution, which would come to Canada. Uh, the Northern Sea Route holds out the possibility that uh, the amount of uh, time and the distance of shipping things from Asia to Europe could be reduced by 30%. Russia wants to control the Northern Sea Passage. Uh, Russia has claims, outrageous claims, that they've made to the entire Lomonosov Ridge and, and uh, Mendeleev Ridge, and that would involve over a million square mile of the Arctic. And they could try to enforce those claims um, unilaterally. What do we do in, in that situation? Uh, Russia has the largest fleet of heavy icebreakers. Uh, we have one old icebreaker. We still haven't finished building and putting into use uh, a new icebreaker. Uh, all the other vessels are relatively small. So these are the kind of uh, strategic realities, uh, economic realities, and ecological realities that we face in the Arctic, in addition to the fact that as members of NATO, we also want to deter uh, Russia uh, aggression, further aggression in Europe and try to reverse their aggression in Ukraine. This is a, a two-day visit by uh, Secretary Blinken uh, in Ottawa, as we mentioned. Uh, this, tomorrow, apparently, he's going to travel to Montreal with uh, with Minister Jolie, and at her request, as a matter of fact, her invitation, uh, that's her hometown, of course. and. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, they have some commonalities. Uh, Blinken, of course, uh, was spent part of his childhood anyway in Paris and, and speaks fluent French, as she does, as you might expect. Uh, but there's a personal friendship there, too, which I guess is only going to strengthen that bond uh, between their two agencies and certainly those two countries. Uh, you talked about the, you know, the fact that they're going to talk about economic interests, especially when it comes to uh, minerals for EVs and things of this nature. And that can be mutually beneficial, as we know. But is is this the building the foundation for a, a future announcements about strengthening uh, the, the North? That's going to probably be the focus. I know, as you mentioned, they want to talk about Ukraine, certainly, and look for a way to, to try to resolve that issue and certainly help uh, the Ukrainians as much as they can. But uh, with Northern defense seemingly at the top of that list right now, uh, I doubt very much, uh, Professor, there'll be an announcement this weekend uh, of a cooperative sense, but at least laying the foundation for future talks to try to come to agreement on something. It, it may indeed be uh, possible because uh, we need to have economic cooperation. We need to have a strategic uh, cooperation. Th there's a lot on the uh, agenda. As I noted, there will be uh, a visit to a uh, lithium reprocessing plant mm -hmm. uh, because that is an economic development that is, that is crucial. Um, but there are so many things that they need to discuss, and good personal relations help. They are not the only factor in diplomacy. But it is uh, fortunate that uh, uh, we do have this kind of, uh, uh, you know, friendliness uh, uh, in the two foreign uh, ministers, uh, and 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 that makes things much much easier. But we also have to get to the substance, and there are uh, other issues that are not uh, to be neglected. Uh, there is a slow-moving revolution potentially uh, happening in Iran. 
Iran is a country that wants to acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, it is the largest supporter of uh, terrorism in in the world. Uh, Ukraine uh, uh, now is suffering because Iran has been providing Russia uh, with uh, these uh, unmanned uh, vehicles. Uh, you know, they, they, they're really kind of uh, suicide bombs that, that are being used by the Russians to kill large numbers of Ukrainian uh, civilians. Uh, and this is the uh, Iranian regime that is causing harm uh, right now to the people of Ukraine. So there's so many things that are uh, in, intertwined, and I'm sure they will be part of the discussion. At the same time, there was this hope that Canada had of going back to some kind of uh, uh, nuclear agreement with Iran. Uh, doesn't look now that that was uh, uh, that likely a possibility or perhaps not that wise uh, a choice. So many things will have to be examined and re-examined. Absolutely. Very important sessions uh, today and tomorrow uh, between, uh, of course, uh, Secretary Blinken and uh, Minister Jolie. Uh, as always, Professor, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.